Welcome back, listeners, to episode two of the Renowned podcast. We're so glad you could join us. Uh, as a reminder, Renowned is really a podcast for the curious. We dust off the commonplace to look for shiny new relevance as we challenge ourselves to think critically about the objects that surround us. How do they echo humanity's past, reflect the present, or foreshadow the future? So we are going to jump right in. But first, Mark, I'll just check in with you. How was the second week of researching for the podcast for you? Uh, it was great. And, you know, listening to our, our intro there, actually, I thought about those words quite a bit over the week while I was, you know, doing research and going down the rabbit hole. Um, yeah, trying to, I don't know, trying to do exactly right. What we're setting out to do is how do we look at the things that are around us? How do we take something like listeners? If you recall from last episode, our word this week is construction. And so, yeah, Allison, as I was digging through that, I thought, yeah, construction is something that has such, you know, at least for me, big modern you know skyscraper we live in new york like there's a very particular angle and maybe that's where you're going to go i guess we'll find out but um uh yeah i don't know it's just there's a lot to think about in terms of what our mission is for this for this podcast and i thought it was just cool it sort of informed and supported me as i went through this whole research week what about you uh yeah similar to you um it was interesting in how it was different from our first week as well though so our first week i was pretty hyped about our word, which was orbit. And so I had a sort of heightened sense of excitement going into the research phase. I was less excited about construction. It just didn't strike anything um, deep within me. And uh, when we come back at the end and talk about after we've gone through our individual pieces, we'll see if that feeling stayed or left uh, in the process. But I'm still um, really enjoying doing this. Excellent. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, it's fun. And I hope listeners, if you, over time, you know, if you're getting used to the show, if you are doing research along with us, or you, maybe it inspires you even just to do a little bit of, of research on something that, you know, you, you come across and realize you maybe don't know as much about it as you maybe want to. I don't know. I, I'm hoping even for myself, it just gives me good habits, right? Like, oh. Rather than just assume that I know what something is, I can take the extra five minutes to go dig into it a little bit. So, um, yeah, well, I guess with that, let's let's get into um, our first segment. I guess uh, as I mentioned, we both got the word construction, and so everyone, if, if you know, you're getting used to the podcast, Allison and I are going to go through each segment. We're going to start with just the hits. So, um, Allison, do you want to set up what just the hits is? Sure thing. So Just the Hits is a segment. First of all, Mark and I are both going to roll our die. And whoever gets the highest number gets to go first for each of the segments. Um, just the Hits is each of us are given a chance to very briefly sum up what our approach is on the word we were given. So on construction this week, we have 15 seconds and we will time each other. Um, <laughs> On that, um, it's a difficult thing to constrain the two of us to 15 seconds. So with that, Mark, I think, shall we roll the dice? Yeah, absolutely. What'd you get? Did better than last week. Uh, I got a three. I got five, baby. Ah, you win again. Nice. So 
I win again. If this keeps happening, we'll just have to force switch it up. But absolutely not. It's a test <laughs> of probability. It's like and I do. Oh, that's and right. Gildenstern are dead. Bernie Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead fans. <laughs> you have to start heads, the spreadsheet heads, on this as well. Heads, heads, heads. Um, yes, I will do that. I will do that. And it's funny, even um, even the even this like idea of constraining ourselves into the 15 seconds audience like as always we you know invite you to find us on social media find us on the website and and give us your thoughts and, and feedback on format on anything you'd like um but i kind of love this because it's this fine line of yo know, i you know either one of us could define construction in five seconds if we wanted to but i like this it's like riding the limit of like how can we set it up but also define it where it teases up the direction we're going to take like, or we took with our research. I don't know, it's kind of fun. And I remember you cut me off last week because I, I think I went a second over probably. <laughs> I believe it was more than a second, but yes, oh, good memory. Oh, oh, oh. And I, I'm really, I think this week, I, I have it so pithy. I don't even need my 15 seconds as my ah, prediction, nice, but nice. Um, I am ready to go whenever you All are. All right, in three, two, one. So this week with construction, I think you could uh, say that instead of going down a rabbit hole, I went down an ant hole. And I'll leave it at that until we jump into our zoom out. 14 seconds. Oh, wow. Longer than I thought. <laughs> oh, I love that you like, <laughs> didn't even get into it. You're just like, it's an ant hole. <laughs> Which I can't decide if that means... You decided not to put in as much research, or you did animal constructions and housing, which you're sort of nodding. <laughs> I'm just nodding along, oh, you know, I'm being okay. an active listener. So you are going to have to wait and see. But first, we're going to have to see if this week you can follow instructions and oh. keep your just the hits to We'll see. I'm already, I'm already looking at this and laughing that I put in like definitions of root parts of the word. Like, wh why am I, I doing do that? It. Audience, know. lay your bets now. He's not be able to do it. Seriously, I'm just going to read really fast. No one will be able to understand me. Okay. Okay, I will count you down. In three, two, one, go. Construction began as the act of spreading or putting things, struere, together, com, hence com struere. The term has evolved to refer both to the act of building an object, but also jumped in English through construe and took on the meaning of interpreting or explaining text. Mm. I got it. Uh, pretty close. I will say it was pretty close. Um, I would like you to do it again, though, because just your little accent there was really a highlight <laughs> of my day. Excellent. Well, I speak a little Italian, and this is in Latin, and I guess it just comes out sometimes. Um, so, gosh, all right, I, I do need to put more work into making you shorter. Um, which part do you want me to read? <laughs> I don't. You actually basically got it out. Okay, good. And no one could hear me as I evidenced from the recording last week when I when I blared you with my voice. It didn't come through because you were talking, which is why I used this this time. But everyone could hear your piece of it. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I guess I gave you a little reaction. Do you have any? I thoughts? think um, I'm excited. You definitely uh, did not go down the same um path as I did. So I do think, so listeners, we were chatting earlier about there will surely come an episode where we both take the same uh, approach 
And, um, you know, we, we honestly do not talk about it all. We, we have no idea until we both reveal it, you know, here and now, which direction we went. I think it'll be amusing when we both go down the same path and we're just basically fact checking each other. And it's a temptation. Definitely. Like sometimes I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder how Allison's doing with her research. Um, so I'm excited again, that we have two different directions and that once again, you started with the etymology of the word. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I don't want to be in the same pattern on how I approach something. I, I feel like that's interesting and reveals to me how I, I don't know, how I think or how I go about researching or trying to understand something. So we'll see. So I'm, I'm happy with where I went, but. I don't know if it starts to feel repetitive, I'm going to have to like push myself to grow into a different way of hmm. embracing something, I think. Which will be part, I think, part of the fun with how this all evolves. Yeah, um, right. As we go through it. Um, all, right, all right. So what do we decide? You you won the role. So I guess you're doing your I go first, first again. Down the rabbit Winner. hole with Allison. Down the ant hole with Allison. So, <laughs> okay. So, Straight up construction didn't interest me that much, which was very much evidenced by my five reading last week when we got the word. Uh, there are clearly some fascinating things to talk about in the world of architecture. Um, it's just for me, right? It's not a particular something that kind of gets me going. Uh, I also considered doing a deeper dive on someone I mentioned in last week's episode, Edward Tufty, uh, and his perspective on sculpture construction and construction in art. But it seemed almost too easy. Like you said, Mark, like I didn't want to like make things. What's the word? I want to make sure that we're constantly keeping things new and exciting and kind yeah. of springboarding off of something from last week. I thought eh, I might be taking the easy road there. So uh, I'm going to so jump. I'm going to jump in and not yeah. to put you on the spot. The Tufty, do you recall yeah. off the top of your head? Like, why was that in last week again? <laughs> Because I, I was I was talking in my big question about is there truly um, a conflict between science and art, hmm. and he he was a statistician, a political scientist, professor at Yale and Princeton, I believe, um, who did amazing work on the visual representation of data. So I was talking about how art and science come okay. together right there, and he also happens to be a sculptor, oh. um, and has some very interesting thoughts on the actual construction process in visual representation physically. Oh, so, nice. so I could yeah. see how you felt a bridge there right away. Right. So, thought, but you decided uh, not to do that. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I, I do, I, I really, um, you know, semi worship this man. So I was just thought it would be so interesting. And again, I thought a little too easy. So what I did, which Mark has already, any, guessed, any was, listeners oh. who know him, somebody reach out, let's, let's get him on the show. Uh, okay. If you, if we got him on the show, uh, if, I, w- I probably wouldn't be able to speak. So let's do that. It'll be fun for anyone who watches us as well as listens to us to just Excellent. watch me have a complete deer in the headlights moment. Um, <laughs> okay. So I did decide as Mark kind of guessed there to dive into examples of construction by non-human species. Um, and there are so many examples across so many species. There's termite mounds, bird nests, rodent burrows, spider webs, um, beaver dams, right? There, there's a lot. The list goes on and on. Many, probably most of these structures are for housing an individual animal or a family or colony of animals. What's fascinating is they go far beyond just basic housing. Uh, a lot of species are able to build in temperature regulation 
um, to create traps for prey sort of around their housing. Protection from predation, of course, just kind of comes with the territory. Um, ventilation, special purpose chambers, right? So they're building these um, structures often in ways that we don't quite understand. Um, there's, of course, tool use. That was another area I thought of going down but didn't. Um, but also the way they communicate in, in the instance of maybe a colony doing it together. So a lot to say about a lot of these different species and structures, but I chose to really focus on one, which was the scientific family um, Formicidae ants, thus down my ant hole. I, I did happen to be watching Ant-Man last week, so that may have influenced my direction. I mean, we'll never know. But You just love Paul Rudd, that's all. I mean, he's a sweetie. We'll get, him, we'll get him on the show too. I, I have a list. I have a growing That's... list. Oh, um, wait, I wanted to, and I don't want to throw you off your game here. No, but, um, no one thing, off. One thing, audience, that Allison and I talked about was, you know, jumping in and, and maybe asking some questions as we, as we go through these of each other, um, knowing full well that because we're tiptoeing across, right, um, uh, a field of, of, of research that will be very deep for some people. Some of you listening might be experts in some of the areas that we're, we're talking about. And, and when that's the case, we would love to hear from you actually through, again, social, the website, whatever. Um, but also just a, a, a question, what do you kind of, do you know why you decided, okay, not construction for humans, I wanted construction of the animal kingdom. Was there something in your past where this was already an interest or did it just sort of spring up on you? You know I, mean? I think, yeah, no, there's somewhat of, of an interest in that. Um, science in general is of interest to me, but um, specifically biology has always been an area of huge interest to me. And one thing that I, I randomly think about to this day is how um, when I was growing up, so in the 70s and 80s, the prevailing scientific thought, school of thought was what makes humans different than the other animal species is that we use tools. That, that that differentiates us across the board, except for chimpanzees, our closest living relatives who also have been seen to use tools. And even as a child, I thought that is not true. I mean, otters with stones to open shells, right? But science said, nope, that's not a tool. <laughs> so yeah, the scientific thinking has changed. I'm immediately, now, oh, okay, I'm like, yeah, yeah it, it is. Exactly. And it, and, and it really bugged me as a kid for some reason that there were plenty of things that could have bugged me. And for some reason, that one has stuck with me my entire life since the 80s. So I think that was probably part of it because I was thinking animal tools and construction and what could this be? And then I actually, I didn't stick with the tool thing, but I think that's what got me there. Oh, I love it. You also made it something that, you know, you rated this lower in interest. So I kind of love that you took something and said, well, can I make it more interesting? Let me gravitate naturally towards something that, you know, will pull you in. Cool. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you for asking. So um, for Miss Today, which is the ant family, is, is massive. Uh, so I focused in it even further here to specifically talk about army ants. And army ants, it's not one specific species or even one specific subfamily. Uh, there are a number of about 200 different species of army ants that range across about five or six different subfamilies. I got different numbers from different sources. So putting in the five to six range there. And I stuck with army or I went with army ants for a couple of reasons. One, I think I have some fascinating things to share with you <laughs> in my 
humble opinion, but also I've seen army ants um, in Costa Rica in action and they're fairly terrifying and interesting. And uh, also one of my favorite novels ever in the world, a book, uh, a novel called The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver has a very um, pivotal scene set in Africa involving army ants. So, yeah, I have a huge amount of respect slash fear for the army ant. So these terrifying little dudes are basically almost always in motion uh, in search of food. Their colonies can exceed a million individuals. Their trails, they march through jungle, um, Africa, Central America, and South America, I think are their main habitats. Uh, they will march in just huge columns, thus the name army ant, the common name, devouring every small thing in their path. Uh, their trails can be as large as 66 feet wide and 330 feet long. So when you see them coming, even larger animals that they wouldn't necessarily be able to kill and eat, flee. Um, so moving a lot. And yet they're masters of construction. And it seems a little bit antithetical because they're, they're moving most of the time. What are they constructing? Well, they go marching in mass, constant work to feed everyone. Um, in fact, they can consume up to about 500,000 prey animals per day, just one colony. And prey animals, we're talking mostly wasps and other ants. Um, but of course, they do need to stop and rest sometimes. They need to protect the eggs and larvae. So when they do stop, they construct what uh, one scientist who studies them calls living, breathing cities. And they call them bivouacs, just like we would call an army, a human army, you know, camping for the night, they, that they would bivouac. Um, so these ant bivouacs, they're large conical structures, and they usually hang from a tree or they are nested in a, in a rotting log. And they're constructed entirely out of the ants themselves. There's no other material. There's no tree material. There's no leaf litter, nothing else. And from the outside, these just look like pulsing, very large balls of ants. Ew. This one, if I know if you're afraid of bugs, this episode, I will be giving you nightmares. And if you are like particularly creeped out by the creepy crawlies, don't go watch any of the videos I'm going to reference. Don't do it. It actually <laughs> makes me think it makes me think of like uh, Spartan uh, army tactics or things like that, where it's like protection through the actual soldiers themselves. It's, it's interesting. I am now thinking of Gladiator and like in the scene oh, where, yeah. where and they go diamond formation. Or the 300 or like, yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. I was going to ask, are they living ants or do they kill them and build them into walls? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put it past ants. <laughs> I'm thinking like scary bedtime stories for naughty children ants. I mean, that makes we it will kill you I'm, I'm, and I'm use you them, in a building. We're going to kill you, chew you up and spit you into some sort of paste that hardens around us. I mean, you know, nature is metal, as they say. As the kids it's, say. As the kids say these days, it is in fact not that horrifying. It is living, all living ants. Okay. So they just sort of switch out. Tag, yep. Fred, it's my turn on the wall. Okay. Well, this is, I got to go for my cigarette break. <laughs> um, this is actually the, the perfect segue, Mark, because 
the way they are. So they look like these big pulsing balls of creepy crawly ants, but they're actually very um, defined structures. They have different chambers inside for the queen and the brood, for the eggs and for the larvae. They can even temperature control the structure. So they need a very specific temperature and humidity for um, egg cultivation and for larvae development. And they manage this by opening and closing uh, quote unquote air vents that are made out of themselves. Like they know when to move apart and when to move back together to keep the temperature regulation correct. The soldier ants are stationed on the top for protection for anything that might be coming after them. And I don't know what would come after an army ant though. I mean, honestly, talk about being metal. If you go after an army ant, you are like the most metal of bugs. Um, And then the- How big are they again? Did you say that? You know, I don't know. No, I don't know the exact size. That is a great question. Or I don't remember the exact size. I I certainly read ranges in some of these studies. They're not, you know, they're not, let's say, bee-sized, right? So they're bigger than a red ant, and they're smaller than a bee. Okay. There's a range for you. So Um, they just are creating the structure and walls and compartments. Exactly. Like internal walls and compartments, making sure that the eggs and the queen... Um, and the larvae are protected and, and managed correctly. Um, soldiers on top to fight anything off. Larger female uh, workers create the outer walls. And so each of these little critters can bear a maximum of approximately eight times their own weight. So if you think about that in human terms, that that is Herculean, wow. uh, what they can do. And so scientists have done studies, of course, to try to understand the structures themselves as well as how are the individual ants communicating with each other to know, hey, we need more folks in this wall over here, or you know, this isn't working, we need more support here, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying too much weight. Um, we still don't understand how they communicate. Uh, oh, I was we gonna need- guess pheromones. Yeah. I know everybody yeah. just says pheromones as natural reaction, ants pheromones, so I'm sure it's more complex than that. But. No, but you're exactly right. So I was gonna say, what we do know is there is some use of pheromones, Still, it is not completely understood. They're they're almost blind, so they're not relying on any sight. They're not looking around and doing it. Um, So we still, there's so much to figure out how they do this. Like they are basically picking up clues somehow, but we can't describe it yet or, or we can't define it yet. But we do know that somehow all of these ants manage to perfectly balance the force and stress evenly throughout the structure. They've tested this. Um, So one scientific team, basically vacuumed up colonies of ants from the jungle. I've watched it like vacuum hose sucked up all these ants and then they reverse vacuum them into chambers and watch them build and, and, and um, analyze the structures. Uh, All the ants are later released, but it did kind of hurt my heart a little bit to think how terrifying that must be for the ants to just be sucked up. I'm torn, as you know, because it's to what extent can they even, can you define or feel terror, but they probably can. I just lost PETA's vote on our podcast. They're like, "Ah." Um, but like, you know what I mean? Because to what extent do they process that or do they, are they just programmed to do it again on whatever floor they were reverse vacuumed on? You know, (laughs) like, do they conceive of that? I don't know. I, I just feel like we're it's a good question. Pers- personifying that. Like for us, it'd be <laughs> like, I just got spit out on Mars, making a wall, freaking me out. You know, like we would freak out, but I don't know that they But are. maybe they don't. I think we'll have yeah. to add it to our big you, questions. You're probably right. Yeah, exactly. Follow-up <laughs> questions. Follow-up questions. So 
Okay. So all of this is pretty amazing. But then when they're back on the move, they don't stay still for long. The construction projects aren't over. So they often make living bridges out of their own bodies to overcome obstacles in the path to, you know, overcome like a, a river, not a river, that would be insane, like a rivulet, let's say. They do this by, again, linking their own bodies together to create a physical bridge or, or tower, for instance, if they're trying to get higher, trying to get to something higher. And there's no lead ant. There's no like four, four man, no four ant. Um, there is, again, as a colony, they are in this process, once again, somehow constantly doing a cost-benefit analysis. And when they're building the bivouac, they're constantly doing the analysis on how much weight is being and how much force is being borne where, so that no one area is overstressed. Um, when they're building these living bridges, they are constantly doing a cost-benefit analysis of how many ants are in the structure versus how many then are able to forage. And when you get to a point where not enough ants are foraging, they will somehow just kind of disintegrate that bridge, go a different way that's easier or send more people out. And we know this, I mean, not just from watching them and thinking that's what's going on. There's a fascinating scientific article written by folks who've studied this that shows that they're, they're, they're constantly maximizing their food intake. It has a lot of math. So I'm going to let you delve into that on your own. I mean, a lot of math, a lot of equations to show how they looked at this over and over again to, to show that um, ants are constantly doing these analyses. Um, and we'll link that in the, in the show notes. I'll also provide a link. Again, don't watch it if you don't like creepy crawlies to a video on YouTube of army ants building a bridge. So it gives you a great example of what they're capable of. They're building the bridge from a eave of a building to a wasp nest hanging from the same eave. So it looks basically like a U-shaped rope with one end attached to the eave and one end attached to the hanging wasp nest, but it's all moving ants raiding this wasp nest. I mean, if you think walking into a spider web is bad, can you imagine walking into that? It just, the stuff of nightmares. Um, so many studies by many entomologists on what we've been talking about. How do they communicate to carry out these complex construction tasks? Um, it's really, it, it's fascinating. We don't know the answers yet. It's fascinating as we seek to further understand the world around us um, and how other species accomplish these tasks in ways so different than us, but there are also practical applications. Um, and the biggest of which is the potential for swarm robotics. So in 1980, 91, not 81, 1991, uh, an electrical engineer at MIT named James McClurkin conceptualized this idea of robot ants, right? And he was thinking if they had sensors and infrared emitters, uh, if they could detect objects in their path, we might be able to build sort of swarm robots. You really did watch Ant-Man because doesn't that, that happens? There's <laughs> like scientists in Ant-Man basically tried to do that right anyway. I'm good for <laughs> pop culture references. That's great because we gotta we gotta like bring it down a little bit from all the science. So <laughs> no. researchers, science. wait. I, oh, I knew it was coming. Ooh. It is a great T-shirt. I really want one now. I'm gonna so, it for you. Researchers um, have since demoed this conceptualization. They've made real robots. Real robots have been made with swarm intelligence, right? And a lot of the inspiration and the science for building these comes from ants and other insects, comes from birds. Think about birds flocking, same thing. They move you know, instantaneously in the same direction with very, well, with communication we don't understand. Um, fish schooling, that sort of thing. So 
you have swarm robots then to help solve navigational tasks kind of en masse without real-time outside input. And the hope is that swarm robotics already being used uh, in some places will really be used in areas like search and rescue. So think about small, small places where humans can't really get in easily or it's not safe for humans. You can send in swarm robots who can navigate maze-like conditions without anyone driving them and have sensors on there where they can send back data uh, when they find survivors. Precision agriculture. So the idea here is it's better for the environment if you have um, some small kind of tractors um, farming exactly where you need to farm and it's all kind of run together and they're um, monitoring you know, what, what needs to be done off of each other. Biofabrication. I mean, this sounds like the stuff of sci-fi, but yeah, self-healing materials. Um, space exploration. So NASA and other organizations are looking at how we could put swarm robots um, on Mars or on the moon to build structures for us. Um, and can we make them self-replicating? Um, and then human construction, you know, bigger. So Already they've used swarm robotics to do 3D printing jobs that are too complex for sort of one standard machine. But the idea is someday could we do it for like road building where you could have um, all of this happening with no human input. Uh, unfortunately, there will also be military applications. There always are, I think, uh, with most scientific advancements. Uh, we already have swarm tactics in military. Think about you know several military units coordinating an attack. Um, instead, you would have robots doing it. Um, there are already conversations happening from organizations at the UN um, to Geneva, conversations happening on human oversight regulations, because it is already starting to sound a bit terrifying, right? Uh, Doctor Who, Star Trek, many other sci-fi shows and movies have featured nanobots with swarm technology breaking bad, basically, right? So uh, that is a possibility. Also, when you remove um, the human oversight uh, just like there have been debates on the non-piloted or the remotely piloted drones. When you remove a human kind of right there, you also maybe remove some moral oversight um, for what's happening. And while your own military personnel may be safer because we're sending robots in, certainly the enemy combatants and innocents in those areas are not um, necessarily going to be safer. So, um, so the military case is, is a little trickier, I think. Um, but that is everything I have to say before a big question. So I went from just thinking about animals constructing specifically down the ant hole to talk about army ants and how they do all of these amazing things and what that might mean for us, um, the human race, as we further our robotics research. So what do you think, Mark? No, I, I love it. I think that's it's fascinating. Uh, I just learned quite a bit. Things I didn't know you mentioned. I mean, just thinking back to everything you said, even even one-off comments where you thought the queen's there, but then all the females are on the outside. In my head, I noted I always assumed that ants had one female who was the queen, and there were no other females. So that's interesting to me. Um, uh, also, what you just mentioned at the end there, you know, the the sense of the morality and it got me thinking right away about if you put a mask on even a human being you put a mask on yourself you will act in ways that are immediately less empathetic or sympathetic to other humans you can quote unquote get away more with you you let yourself do things that are less sympathetic and empathetic right and so i think even moving to drones where you have soldiers piloting them and they're not in the immediate vicinity where 
combat is happening, that is also furthering this like remote warfare, even with that human oversight, um, is raising questions of morality. So what you bring up is like, yeah, if they're completely out of the equation, where is that taking us? Um, I'm not coming down one way or the other. I I, I think it's going to be an inevitable thing. And, and with most things, I think, in human evolution, we, we have to find ways to just imbue the moral code in whatever way we can. So I, yeah, I, it raises a, a ton of interesting things for me. And yeah, not what I would have expected. This is part of what's fascinating me already with our conversations of of where, you know, uh, you would take something. So that's that's great. Excellent. I'm glad you thought of all those questions. Um, but now I am really eager to hear your take on construction. All right. My rabbit hole. Not an ant hole. Classic rabbit hole. Um, so, okay. Where I went, I sort of was naturally drawn back to the root of things, as you could tell from my just the hits, you know, and uh, I think I already mentioned, right? Probably try to push myself into other ways of, of looking at this. But I started to think back and say, you know, if I look at what, where the word comes from, um, and the history of it, it comes from a piling together of things. And so at some point we were able, as we evolved to pile things together. And then at some point, those piling of things became things that we moved into to protect ourselves and to live in. So I started to sort of piece together this, how can I investigate this timeline of when we were piling things? And here's where definitely a rabbit hole. It's funny, we, I think we're both going to have this concept of tools. You mentioned, you know, uh, animals using tools or not. For me, it was at what point when we were breaking away from the primates, did we, were we using tools? Were they using tools? Um, and so this all sort of plays in together where I started to investigate the difference between if we were to stack something just as animals stacking food, if we were putting foraging things to eat and we put that into a stack, for me, at least in the definition of where I was going with construction, that for me isn't a, <laughs> this is how I was splitting hairs. If you picture us in the trees, um, foraging before we were, before the homo um, genus broke off and we were putting food into a stack. That was not a pile of things that I was considering a pile on purpose, if that makes sense. That was like food stored in a space. So at what point do we think we have some historical evidence of us putting something in a pile where the purpose of that pile was to be a pile? Does that make sense? Like it was a representation. It does. I'm so sorry. I'm just cracking up because the way you're describing. I'm sorry, listeners. I was trying to keep it together. <laughs> she really was. If you're not watching this, you've seen me trying not to laugh. We call this a rabbit hole on, on purpose. I know. I'm kind of, just, I can't decide if I stare at myself or like, this is a logical way of going about it. Thank you very much. But also I, the I way know, you're describing it, the way you're saying, Picture us in the trees, picture us stacking stuff. So I'm quite literally picturing you and I like in the trees. In the trees. And then 
just stacking stuff up and you're like, instead of just stacking it, I don't well, know. My visuals were very funny in my head. I, I apologize. Continue. No, no. But part of my research was looking back at like between, you know, so let's say six to 4 million years ago when as part of you, you mentioned, I think for, for Mikadet, for Mikadai, um, we're for Missidai or for Missidai. For Missidai. It's really, right. And we are the Latin guy. Uh, homididae or homididae. Um, so I was in the same sort of ballpark. I'm in the taxonomy of the evolution. King PC orders famous genie soup. Anyone? Anyone who back in eighth grade had to remember? Just scientific. Yeah, phylum. I was the same way. Yes. I had to look up. I was like, some family. So if formicidae is the family, what? It, yes. Yep. Absolutely. What I was fascinated by is definitely like my little mnemonic of King PC orders famous genie soup, um, which I now still remember when I was looking up the taxonomy these days, either, you know, we were just skimming the surface in eighth grade back in 1989. Thank you very much. Um, or it's just obviously so much more complex now. They were sub genuses, subfamilies within subtribes, that was the term, sorry, tribes into subtribes and everything else. So much more complicated than I recall, <laughs> which makes sense. Anyway, so, so your comment about swinging around in the trees, which, which is really true. Like part of my research was when were we, when did we stop being swinging around in the trees and it had a bipedal nature? Um, and when did that happen before the homogeneous broke off because there was a bipedal nature? But we'll get there. Uh, and and I'll, I'll try to give this some structure. Settle in, listeners. Why, exactly. Why I was trying to tackle this was part of me is I wanted to figure out, yes, as opposed to piling things for food or naturally piling things just to survive, when was the impetus to pile something for a purpose of either expression or art or purpose of housing or something else. That for me became construction versus a haphazard, I'm protecting my food, I'm putting it over here in a little pile, <laughs> right? That, is, that to me isn't a construction. Um, that's just- Hoarding. That's hoarding. That's, that's just organizing and protecting food. Um, so that's where I started down my rabbit hole anyway. And so part of me started to consider if I want to zone in on when we might have first constructed something, um, we piled together something for the purpose of piling it together. I started to consider to zone in on a few things. When were we bipedal, bipedal? Um, when did we have tool making? <clears throat> and when did we start to see artistic expressions? And so, of course, this is really, you know, going back quite a while. And so here's what I found anyway. Um, Artipithecus is, a, is one of the first genus within a hominidae uh, family that is thought to be bipedal. So that puts us around 5.6 million years ago. Another one, a later genus of hominidae is uh, Kenyathropus. It's, it's interesting, I wanna say Kenyan. I think clearly that is probably where some things were discovered because the first beginning of this word is Kenyan, but Kenyathropus um, is a, leader, a later genus 
And that shows evidence of deliberately constructed stone tools. And that's around 3.5 million years ago. So that's before the homo genus has even broken off, right? So we're not even in our main genus yet. So that's before kind of humans were, were around. Um, so that's in my research, I started to realize, well, where do I want to define like when when I say we constructed something, do we want to say our ancestors constructed something or not? Anyway, so that gave me a, a ballpark. Um, and then the Homo genus starts around 2.5 million years ago. Homo erectus, which I think we're probably most of us have then become more familiar with when you hear that term. And boys and girls giggled in junior high school to hear homo erectus, of course. Um, I almost giggled right now, so <laughs> let's not make fun of the middle schoolers. <laughs> um, uh, that's 1.9 million years ago. So I'm just now I'm just putting things in context, right? And homo sapiens came around around 300,000 years ago. So that's where I started to think, all right, that could be a, a general time. And then in doing my research, I came across something called the Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. Allison is shaking her head. Uh, anyone who's not watching, listeners, I don't know this. You, you clearly have heard I was, of this before. I was an anthropology major in college and oh. I focused on archaeology. And then I worked as an archaeologist for a number of years, albeit in the United States, not in Africa. Uh, but a lot of my um, college studies were on, you know, uh, Richard Leakey and others who worked in the Old oh. Gorge. So oh, I great. love this topic. I love oh, that you took great. this space because I haven't talked about it in such a long time. Oh, that's amazing. Um, well, gosh, well, then I obviously welcome you to cut me off and jump in with color and commentary. Um, so the Old Divide Gorge in Tanzania is uh, thought to be about 1.8 million year old civilization. And one of the earliest evidence of construction that was used for housing. So at first, when I was reading about it, they thought some of the, the gatherings of materials might have just been artistic or expression. But then the more I read about it, the more that it, was, it did turn out to probably be huts and things used for living in. So that's where a little bit my, my goal, my plan of trying to find something that was an artistic construction. Because for me, I think the construction doesn't have to be something we live in. You have artistic constructions. You mentioned, Allison, right? Sculpture constructions. For me, I think anything is, is a construction if it's intended to be a pile of things, not by chance, as I've been saying for the past 10 minutes. Um, so with all of that put together, <laughs> here's where I knit it out. And uh, sorry, audience, if this has just been this crazy fluster of me going through a, a confusing history timeline. But I think for me, it basically, we would say the, the earliest physical constructions were somewhere between four to two million years ago, right? Because you've got 1.8 million years ago, constructions were all the way to the point of being houses, like things we were living in. So I would say naturally, we would first have put things together for artistic expressions or for just the purpose of, even if it's just little kids, building something for fun is still putting together something that isn't doesn't have a purpose other than to be a stack of stuff. Um, and where that might relate to the use of tools, uh, I think it certainly relates to us by being probably bipedal. I feel like that has something to do with our evolution and when we would have stacked things for fun, so to speak, or for an artistic purpose. Um, and then if I take an, another look at this, because if you look at the word construction, the word way back for Latin 
uh, referred to piles of things. And in languages other than English, that is sort of what dominated, um, which makes sense. I think immediately we think construction, we still nowadays, we think of like buildings, we think of things that are piles of things still, very organized piles of things. But um, when the word first jumps to English though, it actually meant specifically, based on what I've read, constructions of words. So for English, the introduction around the 1300s, I believe, was how you actually thought of and organized words and therefore concepts of things. So, you know, I think we still have this idea of a mental construct um, versus a physical construct. And so, also, Mark, sorry, I hope I'm not. Yeah, no, no, please jump in. You, this may be what you were about to say next, but that's really, really interesting because I didn't mention this, but another direction I considered going down was sentence construction. And the rules of grammar. So you're talking about like mental constructs, but also there's um, within grammar there is there are very specific rules for sentence construction. So ah, construction. So piling things up in a sentence. No, just kidding. I want it. You just no, keep saying really, piling things is. up. So I really I know to, I do. Right. <laughs> How do we pile things on in a structured way so that as a species we can understand each other is also a really um, fascinating avenue that I didn't take. So yeah. sorry, and just wanted to throw that. No, away. I'm glad you're mentioning because you're right. The audience is probably like, why is Mark rocking back and forth saying piles of things, piles of things? It's because if I go back to you, I just like scrolled up in my notes um, to my just the hits, the 15 seconds. Struere is literally spreading or putting things into a pile. And then together is com, C-O-M. So Kamsturere, which became con with an N, construere, cons, you know, construct or construe, um, was our basis of, of construction. But that construe actually is where in the 1300s it became about construing language and how do you construe mm -hmm. something? And you can already hear the difference in how we commonly use English, right? Oh, you've misconstrued that, meaning you've mis understood the construction of words that I've used or the, or the concepts that I've used. Um, we would never use in modern English, you've misconstrued something like you, you built it wrong, right? We, I don't think we would use it that way. Um, sorry, I'm such a dork about language. I love language. Um, so I think it's interesting, Allison, that you almost went that way because yeah, that's from based on what I read, that was how it first jumped into English was about words and word construction, about sentence construction, things like that. And used primarily in, um, one of the first citations, if I'm remembering, was from an old book of like law or um, or government around a, a quote on what construction would you put on this? It was like one of these quotes that was used. That's interesting. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I'll finish up with um, trying to sum up again the, the two types. Right. Um, I think intentional piles of things just intended to be piles of things would be between four and 2 million years ago. Evidence of the first livable piles of things, homes, constructs would probably be the old divide gorge in Tanzania. Now that I think, Alison will probably know better than me, is just something that survived. It's like something that is the oldest example of, um, of a pivotal shift in our, uh, ancient cultures that happened. So that's 1.8 million years ago. But if we're going to think of terms of modern cognition and what we were just talking about with mental and, and textual constructs, I started to do some research on when did, when did we start to think in terms of how we think now? 
modern cognition. And from what I read, that was about 300,000 years ago, basically when Homo sapiens emerged is when we sort of started to have the mental capacity that we have now. Which I like to sort of think of as a computer operating system. Our operating system was established, but we didn't have any of the data. We didn't have any of the applications that we have now, right? Our understanding of the world was, was nil, but at least we were all running on the same operating system, more or less, uh, ever since. Um, and also, where I'll, I'll, we haven't talked about this, Allison, but I figured it might be interesting when, when we think of it, where I like ran out of time this week, you know, like, or, or where like the rabbit hole ended because I decided, right, it's time for us to have our, our recording day together. Where I left off digging in my rabbit hole was still the Old of I Gorge and sort of where that represented in the reading the, the transition from the Oldowan civilization into the Acheulean or um, uh, history. So apparently these are named, these are, they call them technologies, which I think is fascinating in what I was reading because they didn't use civilizations. They said this was a technology and they were referring to civilizations. So I was a little confused, like why they were using that term. So if anybody knows, listeners or Allison, please tell me. But, um, but basically it was like Oldowan, which comes from, I believe, a plant in that area, but also the old Devi, old Awan is all sort of related, but it was a type of tool that wasn't a full ax. It was like a handheld um, tool for like shaving things or something like that. And Acheulean was when that evolved into like a, a true handheld ax. And so they seemed to be pairing these pre-human um, or even homo genus, um, uh, no, I guess, sorry, I'm misspeaking. That's the very beginning of Homo, I believe, um, by the tools that they were using, which I think is kind of a, makes sense, but it's like fascinating. And then also that one of these civilizations lasted for like a million years or more. So that just blows my mind that in common, like our concept of human evolution and time, we think of like, BC to, you know, or BCE before the common era to the common era and thousands of years. But to think that we had our ancestors for like 1.4 million years living in sort of a static, it's not static, right? That's, 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 it's just, I much think it's slower, not static right. evolution. Yeah. Development. I yeah. think, and um, as Mark, as Mark has thrown in a lot, I, again, it bears repeating, please, people who really know this stuff, come tell us uh, what we got wrong yeah, or what yeah, we yeah. missed or yeah. all of that. I have not I've been in college for a very long time. So a couple things. One, I don't remember everything. And two, a lot has changed. So my understanding at the Old of I Gorge and Leakey was the sort of first prominent um, archaeologist, paleontologist who, who found evidence there that helped us build our understanding of the journey. So you mentioned Australopithecus, Australopithecus, I think maybe you didn't, you mentioned some of the yep. right yep. Uh, steps on the way. And we started to find, oh, okay, this is what links us then with our original ancestors. And since then they have found so many more, right? So what I learned 
in the late 80s, early 90s has already been massively updated. But I think, Mark, to answer your question about technology versus civilization, it's the same thing as when we say the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, that sort of thing, because we're not talking about one specific civilization in one particular area, like, uh, let's say, from a very different time, like the Aztecs or the Incas. We're talking, we're, we're categorizing the species based on their technology and tool use that probably ranged more broadly than that one area. So that it's so civilization is too specific, uh, but technology at least helps you plant in time um, what they, you know, what, wh where the de development was um, okay. of our species. Oh, that makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. So that's, um, that's where I went. I'll pause. Uh, I mean, I think you just reacted and responded, but any other. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited. Um, I apologize to everyone for my constant giggles, but piles and piles, like it's turtles all the way up. I don't know. I had so many thoughts going through my head. Just Mark kept saying piles. Um, <laughs> so we have to get a t-shirt related to this somehow. I'm not sure. Uh, I loved it. I love that you started again as I mentioned with the etymology and then went into an area that I am so fascinated with. And I didn't even think about, you know, kind of going in that direction. Um, incredibly interesting and so much more to be learned in that space, which is what also like, we don't know everything in that space. There were more discoveries to be had. So I think that's fantastic. I also like that we both thought about sentence construction and now I'm kind of sad. I didn't go down the sentence construction route, um, but just something else to do in our free time. So no, I thought that was terrific, Mark. All right. Well, I think with that, looking, keeping an eye on the clock for our our, our dear listeners, um, we'll move into the big questions that crossed our minds. So I guess, Allison, you want to go first? Yes, sir. So I am, um, in the interest of time, I had a few, but I'm going to narrow it and I'll also just... Um, break the fourth wall here. We realized we went very long last time. We're going to try to not go quite as long in our episodes going forward. Uh, no promises though, because sometimes the topic <laughs> is probably just going to be too tasty that we're not going to be able to resist. So for my big questions, I think that we, we already kind of touched on one in the conversation we had at the end of my rabbit hole slash ant hole, which was when we think about swarm robotics, um, and the, the the implications for military use, there, there are a lot of ethical questions there. And, and we can certainly talk about that. I'd be happy to, but because we did talk a little bit about that and remotely piloted drone strikes and the moral ambiguity, uh, the other thing I was thinking about, Mark, you happened to bring up as I was talking, so it was kind of perfect, you presaged this, but uh, my thoughts were all of the work going on to understand how other species do a lot of different things and also, how that can benefit us. Uh, what are the what 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 are the limits we should place on animal experimentation? Right. I gave the example of vacuuming up uh, millions of army ants. Um, animal experimentation on many levels is important to forward science, um, but the more we learn, you know, we talked already about the fact that science now is is fully embraces the idea that other animals use tools. Um, communicate in different ways, understand in more ways than we ever thought possible. How they feel pain is um, especially, you know, um, non-chordates, like still under debate, uh, but I think they must feel some level of 
discomfort, panic, pain, whatever we want to call it. There is a survival instinct, I believe, in every in every animal. Uh, so really, where should the limits be? And as usual, these are big questions that I don't think I have answers to or anyone has full answers to. But Mark, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Both things yeah. we've touched on. Um, where I just went was it's like half a thought, half a question, but I'll, I'll just spit it out. Um, I would like to think anyway, that as we progress, like I'm thinking in terms of, so I work right in, in the pharmaceutical space. And so I think in terms of me um, mechanisms of action, MOAs, and when we're testing a drug, you're, you're understanding what the mechanism of action is. And just like coding a computer or coding other things, we build on knowledge as we go along. There are understood mechanisms of action so that we're not, when we're developing and testing something, we're not starting from scratch. Think of actually the speed of the COVID vaccine and things like that. The vaccine's development was, was relying on packaged understandings that went ahead, right? So where am I trying to go with this? I would like to think that at some point you wouldn't need to test on a fully living separate creature, you'd be able to either know the mechanisms of actions in its own blocks to, to jump ahead of that and maybe not need it, or build tissue, like we're already starting to formulate tissue and, and create tissue from other things, create enough of not a whole animal, but parts of an animal that are not sentient in any way or have... Uh, uh, it really is a rabbit hole, right? To what extent I even mentioned it before that these animals can think or feel something, but we know that they do, especially when you think of octopi or something like that. Hmm. Freaks me out. Um, so where am I going? If we are able to build parts of biological, physiological systems to test things on in isolation, is that one way that's better? But then to your point, where's the gray area of the danger at some point you do need to test on a whole organism because we're not that good at building just a piece because there's going to be a lot of things that could go wrong for a human being. So I almost feel like you're, tell me if this makes any sense, trying to build the, these, these capabilities to test things without full animals on the back end, without risking the negative impacts of not testing enough and trying to balance the two and hoping that we can build the capabilities to be very robust in how you test and approach these things to the point where you can fully replace testing on animals. But until we really are very confident in that, I don't know that you'll ever be able to completely stop. Does that make any sense? I hope. No, it makes complete sense. And I agree with you. And that's why I, the older I get, the more I have issue and the more I look for products that haven't been animal tested, you know, cosmetics, for instance. Yep. But when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs, I don't know what the answer is around that. Um, even yep. if we got to a point, again, I know this sounds sci-fi-y, if we got to a point of using cloned animals, for instance, they're still sentient beings, right? Oh, so, right. That's what I'm thinking. Like, at what point, like, you you know, right now we're probably constructing um, molecule masses, or at some point we might be able to construct an entire organ. But to your point, like, when we're testing more and more of the animal, well, well, you have a sheep. You built an entire sheep. Then what the hell's the difference between the sheep you didn't build and the sheep, you know? 
Yeah. And there's actually a great book. I won't, I won't mention a lot of it in case anyone hasn't read it, but um, called never let me go. It was also made into a movie. Gosh, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, that goes into some of these issues. I'll leave it at that. Fantastic novel. Um, but there's another book and forgive me for anyone who's watching, you see me looking down. It's because I'm just doing a very quick quant search here for a book that I read a number of years ago. The, the book is called Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. And it's about our relationship with animals, right? So you think about the ones we keep as pets and we treat as members of our family the ones that we hate, that we would eradicate if we could, that we're terrified of, and then the ones we eat and how, you know, the way we classify and think about animals and put them in these different categories. If we knew somebody were, you know, had killed a neighborhood dog and ate it, we would, you know, put them in jail, but we do the same thing to cows all the time. So really, how do you define these moral? It's just um, the socialized. Yeah. I mean, right now you find like the clashes online between Eastern and Western civilizations over the treatment of dogs, for example, or, you know, yeah, it's, or when it, it gets muddy in between when you forget, like when I actually see a cow in person, they're sweet and I'm there and I am almost consciously trying to forget that I do eat meat. And so it's, it's like this bizarre separation of, how and when you think of the animal. Yeah. It's, I don't believe yeah. that you're on that farm looking at that cow and thinking it's sweet. I think you're looking in the grass for snakes and just wanting to get out of there as fast as you can. <laughs> right. Well, there's another example. Some folks love snakes and I don't understand that, but you know. Um, so yeah, another big question with no answers. Um, yeah. Where did you go with yours, Mark? So I went, and I'm just looking over my notes here. And laughing because I wrote this in like a fever dream. I was just like, oh, so let me try to make sense of it. Was it a fever um, dream or just piles and piles of it stuff? Was piles, piling piles. stuff. Piles, piles, definitely piles, def, def, definitely piles. Um, um, okay, so if construction began as a means to prolong our life through protection from the elements, now this is after the artistic piling, as I talked about, piles, piles, piles but actually the livable piles, right? If that's how it started, through protection from the elements and to provide a home base for us to hunt from, to sleep in, et cetera. And then as we evolved um, from, you know, into wood huts to massive modern constructions as we have now, I got to thinking, you know, as we've so successfully leveraged construction, and other advances, not just construction, but you know, protection from the elements is one of our major ones for survival, to prolong our lifespan. And now, of course, overpopulate and what that's going to mean for the human species and everything else. And then as we begin to push to leave the planet, as we start to have it both in popular culture, I'm just going to end up being perceived by our audience as <laughs> the idiot popular culture guy, but in movies like Interstellar, one of my favorites. Um, Elon Musk and our, our push towards Mars, et cetera, et cetera. But as we push to leave the planet and to populate potentially other planets, and as we begin to meld even medical and communication technologies into our bodies, is it possible that at some point- With future, swarm robotics, sorry, oh yeah, just thought no, I'd exactly. link them together. Um, it, uh, totally. Uh, is it possible that at some point in the future, humans will only be the piles of things that we as humans purposely built, will we become and only exist as construction? When you think of 
very broad evolution from animals putting things together into piles to building into ourselves to perhaps at some point being completely built in another thousand, two thousand years. I do love that because now I do honestly feel that really was a direct connection to nanobots and nanomedicine and, you know, having when we need something repaired, they inject, they don't do it yet, um, dear listeners, but you see it in sci-fi a lot. The idea would be you could inject nanobots to self-heal and that they could repair themselves. Mark, that's where you're going, right? And then us as piles of things, again, I had to just, I had to pull the giggles back because you're even taking it down to our own our own biology that we just become in the end piles of things we started as a species by piling things up for some purpose and now we become those piles ourselves which all is making me feel very matrixy right yeah, now right um uh of what we are but i think it's fascinating i think that is a rabbit hole that doesn't end I think that is something we could just think about and kind of go down the implications of for hours. Yeah, because it's all self-preservation. I think it started that way to save our food, to then protect ourselves, to now live longer, to have less pain. Um, When will, you know, we joke, half joke about popular culture and, and representations of it, but there's some films where we then upload our consciousness into things that are completely built into computers where our bodies are no longer needed because we want is our minds and we don't want any pain. And when, if, when that happens, we really will be constructions. Like, <laughs> that's it. I think that was the perfect wrap up because it tied in both things we talked about, which I did not think was going to happen. So amazingly well done. We, we've somehow managed to slide into yes, home base there go once us. again. <laughs> Um, okay. So why don't we do a recap just like we did last week on, you know, what, how has this been? So last week we talked a little bit about, it was our first episode. So it was a, wow, we had this concept. How did it go? How did we enjoy doing it? So I think looking back, we talked a little bit at the beginning of the episode, just what was the week like in general, uh, but calling out anything specific, Mark, that you kind of experienced that was different or any specific works you want to make sure that you direct people to. Um, and then we'll end all this with kind of revisiting our initial gut reaction. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll post again, I think, uh, sort of a bibliography or a work cited type of thing into our, our notes, uh, the episode notes and on the website, you'll have a blog post for this, for this episode. So if there's any, Thing that Allison or I mentioned that you're interested in or want to do your own research or look into it, we'll, we'll have those things there for you to reference. Um, from a process perspective, yeah, I, I, the same thing. I, I really enjoyed once I sat down to do it, how much the process of doing this felt better than zoning out to movies and TV. I mean, I love movies and TV. I'm absolutely going to sit down in, you know, another half an hour and, and, you know, zen out for the rest of the the night to some of that. But I really loved balancing, you know, my, my work week and movies and TV time. I've been doing more reading. I just, this feels so good, right. To, to really water the brain, right. <laughs> like, enrich uh and come out of i just feel like i've learned a ton in the last two weeks just putting myself through starting with a simple noun and 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 just wherever it leads me 
uh, leads us right to to research. So it's been exciting and really great. Yeah, I, I agree. I same experience, and it it got me thinking when I was in college uh, writing research papers, etc. Um, this was the day before, you know, the days before Wikipedia, really before the internet was something for public use. So a lot of going to the library and using the card catalog and doing a lot of research oh, that way, um, which took longer. Yeah. Um, and I was a procrastinator. I still am a procrastinator. Like if I have a 25 page paper due tomorrow, I am going to suddenly decide I need to clean under the fridge with a toothbrush right? Just something that doesn't need to be done. So um, in college, I was very much like that. And I would start the paper with not enough time to do my best work and somehow always pulled it off. But um, but I once I started doing the research, I was so excited about it and the directions I could take it, but I hadn't left myself time to be able to do the research to take it in those directions. Um, and I always kind of disappointed myself, but then sure enough, just, you know, true to my own nature, I would come around again doing that. And this experience for two weeks, I've just, I've found that joy again, that you start down one path, as you said, Mark, and suddenly you realize there's so much to learn and be it, you know, things you want to make sure that you've read about and researched for your specific topic for this podcast or things that you kind of make side notes about on, oh, I really want to learn more about this in my own spare time. And just that joy of um, the excitement of realizing how much there is to learn that I still don't know. So I still think it is it is a blast and I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, so, I, I love that. Um, I have a, a tab open in my browser still. That's a PDF of the history of human cognition, which was going to be a whole nother like rabbit hole into itself. Um, that uh, I decided, you know, I didn't quite have time to go down that. It wasn't quite the path I was as I refined it. So, but that's still waiting for me as, as something to read, to your point, extracurricular. <laughs> I know. I, I do still have about, you know, 20 tabs open because I some things I just kept open in case I wanted to reference in more detail while we were talking and other things just to kind of keep there because I want to read them. So yeah. you know, it sounds like we're doing the same thing. So then, okay, after this week, I think last week when we generated construction, you you rated it as a seven, then you tried to back it down to a six, but right. you were denied or you self-denied, actually. I was going to give you a break. Um, so how are you feeling now after this week? Would you still give it a seven or did it go up or down for you? Yeah, this went up. I think it's funny. I was so excited by Orbit and because it, was our first go around, our, our first episode and go around, huh, so to speak. Um, and uh, and I got really excited. I remember I didn't go to 10, but I went to like nine. So this week, it definitely went up. I almost think because, because it struck such a universal chord for me and it went to this path of when were we first doing things that animals could impart to but when did we do it and the difference of like I, I won't say it again the p word um for a reason versus not a reason etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't know it just became this really interesting thing and then the the big question kind of came out of nowhere for me when i sat down to think about wow well, where is this going to go and will we become the construction? So I am, I'm going to go 10. Um, I think it, it surprised me. I thought it might go down or stay the same, but this, this really became like a fascinating thing for me. That is amazing because I think last week 
Um, you went from a, was it a seven to a nine or a 9.5, something yes. like that. Yep, yep. Um, and you said at that time during the episode, I don't know what it would take for me to go to a 10 and now <laughs> we're at a 10. So I think that's fantastic that, um, I think once again, it kind of proves what we had a hypothesis, right. That we're out to, to kind of prove with this podcast, which is we're yeah. curious about so many things and there's so much we don't know and everything is interesting, right. Even if we don't know that we're interested in it yet, thus our random piece, right? That's why we generate a word and we don't just go with things we're interested in. Um, and it's kind of like working out to be that way. I know. I can't decide if it's going to be boring if I'm always like 10, 10, 10. We'll see. We'll see if that happens. In a way, I wouldn't be that upset to your point. If if that means that when you really scratch the surface, what's what's our intro when we like dust it off for relevance? It's really, there. it is really there. That relevance is there and it becomes a wild new way of seeing things. That's great. I'm kind of looking forward to, and I guess this might be a little bit evil, but I am looking forward to a possible episode in the future where we're both like, yeah, I got nothing. It was just, I don't care. It was awful. I tried to research it. It's dumb. I don't anticipate that happening, but it might be amusing. Okay. Um, yeah. So, okay. I rated this originally as a five. I think what I said was it just isn't sparking anything inside of me really. Um, I, in my research, although the army ants are fascinating. There's still for me, if I'm just thinking about um, something that's hard to define, like a feeling it gives you, it wasn't as exciting for me as last week as orbit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with orbit kind of, I went down a path of, you know, we started with sci-fi and then it was literature and then it was art versus science. And then it was social orbits. And there was so, so much and in this case, as we've both shown, we took two different paths. There was also a lot. But for me, without going down a similar path to ants and talking about all the other animals, we don't have time for that. So I wasn't going to do it. There wasn't sort of that much more to go. So while I found it fascinating, I enjoyed the process thoroughly. I love learning more about all of that. You know, probably still not my favorite. What I did, what did get me more excited about it was hearing all your research and the direction you took it. So, so when I finished my own process, I probably would have said, you know, maybe I went from a five to a six uh, because all the stuff about um, animal construction is so fascinating. But then all your piece really got me more excited. So I guess I'll stick with five to six though, because I think I'm supposed to rate, you know, how I feel at the you know, five, five, six and a half. Let's go with six and a half, but that, you know, that extra bump is only piled on because of all the work that, piles, that you piles, did piles, 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 and, piles. What, and what you brought to it. Um, so yeah, five to 6.5, I'd say, but still, it still went up, still directionally correct for our hypothesis. Great. All right. Well, I think with that, then let's set up next week's word. So let's do our, our gut reaction for next episode. All right. I have the generator open here. So folks, as a, as a reminder, we're getting used to as you're listening to more and more of these episodes, what we do is find a new random noun that we will research for next week. And we certainly invite you to research along if you'd like on your own and then show up and, and listen next week, see what direction we took, compare it to what direction you may have took, uh, taken, and we'll see. All right, three, two, one. Shopping. <laughs> I, I was laughing I silently why. for a listener. I, I don't know why that really threw me, but yeah, I mean, uh, that's enough. I mean, 
<laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. Um, I'm thinking hard here. I uh, So here are some info about me. I don't love shopping. I also don't love chocolate. Um, so I know like I don't fit a lot of stereotypes. I'm just throwing that in. Like I don't like shopping. I never wanted babies and I don't like chocolate. And so, you know, if we, we want to talk about our society's stereotypes about women. Um, so don't take Allison shopping for chocolate babies is what we're saying. <laughs> Plus you're going to pile them up. So chocolate babies. So, but I do think there's, I do think actually there are probably a lot of fascinating avenues like fifth Avenue. I'm kidding. Avenues to take with this. So I am going to give this actually a 6.5 only because I think that there are going to be ways to go with this that are interesting and unexpected. What do you think, Mark? Um, I'm I might surprise myself. Like I have some thoughts on where I can go with this, but like gut reaction after I'm just sort of thrown by I, I don't know. I think coming out of orbit and construction and where we took it, this just feels so different. Which I do love the nature of the randomness here. Um, I'm gonna do a four, just because I don't know what's gonna happen here. I, I think I can jazz this up for me and like take it in a certain path, but, but I don't know. So I'm going to write this down four for me. And what was yours else? Mine was 6.5. And I think this is fascinating because I, I do want to throw in something else about societal um, expectations. So we got construction, which most people would think of as a more masculine, you know, interest. And I rated it lower than you. And then we got shopping, which many people would sort of stereotypically say is a more feminine interest, female interest. And I rated it higher than you. And I do think that's hilarious. And next week, maybe we'll tell the story about when we took a guided tour of the Smithsonian Museum of American History and how those stereotypes really just actually do not fit either of us. Uh, but in this case, they did so 6.5 for right. me and a four for mark so mark do you want to take us out absolutely so thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode this is the renowned podcast um if you enjoyed the show please remember to follow us on whatever platform you're listening or watching us on uh, probably listening on things like apple podcasts um amazon music etc so please follow us, like us. If you have the opportunity to rate us and leave us a review, amazing. That will help us uh, to reach more people. Also, we have Renowned Podcast. That is R-E-N-O-U-N-E-D. A little play on nouns. Uh, RenownedPodcast.com, where you can find ways to engage with Allison and I. Also find easy ways uh, to listen to the show on, on different platforms. So please find us there as well. And that's it. Thank you very much. Again, we are all set up to research shopping for next time. So we'll see you then. Bye, everyone. <laughs>